Hello and welcome to the June episode of The Crit. We're back after a brief early summer hiatus. My name is Ollie Stratford, I'm your host, and we have a really exciting episode ahead of us where we're going to be looking back over all the design news from this past month, as well as a long-form interview with Alan Maskin from Olsen Kundig, the architect behind Anoa, the new children's world of the Jewish Museum Berlin. In previous episodes of The Crit, I have been joined by my co-host, Christina Rapatsky, who, for long-term listeners will know, sadly left at the end of the last episode. Over the intervening weeks, there's been a lot of questions about how The Crit would cope with her loss. More importantly, how would I feel? Crit hosts have always worked in pairs, and many people concerned it might be similar to hamsters, where... When one goes, the other often follows soon behind. I should clarify, Christina hasn't died. She's just moved on to a new job. So a question of, would I also move on to a new job? To those people, I say, certainly open to the conversation. If anyone has any offers, very willing to speak, probably would expect a slight bump in my salary. But that that's very much something that can be hammered out in interviews. In the interim, however, I'm delighted to say we have found a new hamster... <laughs> <laughs> to join me in uh, in the critical hamster wheel. Uh, we're joined actually by Desenio's founder and first ever editor, Johanna Argerman-Ross, who has gamely stepped in. Johanna, how are you doing? Good. That was quite an introduction and a lot of news being broken to me, you know, as I am also your employer. So you are actively looking for new opportunities, Ollie? Not actively looking, uh, just very much open. Do you see my hamster suit that I donned for the occasion? <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's very um, <laughs> fetching sounds a weird thing to say <laughs> to my boss. <laughs> yeah, you're sort of wearing a, a fur gilet or, or something along those lines. Become part of my wardrobe in this cold June. Well, let's press on with the episode because we have a lot to get through. So, Ollie, do you know what I did this week? I don't know. I went for my first in-person opening since lockdown began in March 2020. Oh, that's very nice. Did you have a did you have a wee glass of prosecco? No, there were no drinks allowed and no food. No drinks allowed. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, that's a, scarcely worth attending. <laughs> I attended for the benefit of art. Uh, I saw Charlotte Perrion, The Modern Life, at the Design Museum. It was originally at the uh, Louis Vuitton Foundation in Paris, right? And it's moved over. In a slightly different guise and a slightly different name, I think. But yes, it's a, it's a, a take on that show at the Louis Vuitton Foundation. Uh, and it's a really wonderful show. Charlotte Perrion, for those who don't know, uh, was one of the great architects of the 20th century. And I guess what's often pointed out, a female architect and at times overlooked for some of her achievements. She came to fame in the 1920s under the guise of modernism and started working with Le Corbusier in his office late on in that decade. Whose shadow she was always in to an extent until recently, which is one of which has been one of the great shames because Charlotte Perrion had an amazing body of work on her own, alongside the work she did with Cabusier of furniture, of architecture, some incredible projects. 
but very unfairly, I think she's often been neglected in favour of the Corbusier and the other male modernists, which is a pity because I think she's a much warmer and more interesting figure in some ways. Her, Her modernism is less didactic, I think, and less strict as some of that machine for living business and and feels a bit richer for it so it's it's high time that she's had this kind of renewal of critical appreciation of her work it's really wonderful and i mean it's not necessarily a completely new thing i think that um the design museum staged a show of her work in the 1990s already and there's been quite a few large books published on her complete uh, works um, in the most recent sort of 10 to 15 years. So that's exciting, but it's also good and I think worthwhile considering you need to foreground uh, these people again and again, because I think that uh, sometimes with time people get forgotten. I think her, her estate, which is her family, have been very proactive about pushing her work and getting it out there. So I think those books have been written by her son-in-law, Jacques Barsac, and her daughter, Panette Perion, has been very active as well. And I think they've put a lot of the legwork into it, into making sure that Charlotte isn't forgotten, into making sure that Charlotte gets the recognition and critical appraisal that she deserved. It was interesting for me to engage with some of the more detailed material, like... um sketches, little notes. There was a quite hilarious article published in the British magazine The Salon where Charlotte Perrion speaks in defence of the use of turbular steel, for example, in reaction to some of Britain's architecture critics' dislike of the material at that time. Why did they dislike it? It's coldness, I guess it's connections to maybe a more medical aesthetic mm. um, and that it didn't have the kind of warmth of wood, for example, which is mm. interesting because Perion herself, after the Second World War, started feeling the same and uh, her later work is much more organic and rich in its material uses. How is the exhibition at the Design Museum? Because I remember going to see it at Louis Vuitton and my main memory of it was it was overwhelming because it was just so huge. It was 4,000 square metres of space devoted to Charlotte Perrion and in some ways that was wonderful because it immersed you in her world and a big part of it was doing these recreations of some of her interiors and trying to capture some of the excitement people would have felt when they first saw it but at the other hand there was just so much Charlotte Perrion it was an awful lot to take in the design museum has a much tighter smaller exhibition space so I'm wondering how how it feels in that museum I think it worked really well and it's so interesting because I think the overwhelming feedback that that first show had was just how large it is people often commented on its size over its content anyway (laughs) less perion please (laughs) (laughs) a little perion goes a long way but here i think this is a more bichu exhibition and i think it uh, does the work a world of good i really enjoyed it i think it's a, a great show well worth seeing We're going to keep it in London for the next story, and we apologise for the slight London-centric nature of this month's edition, but, you know, it's lockdown. We're not travelling as widely as we would normally. It's good you've been to the Design Museum, because I actually went to the other big opening in London this month. Which was that? The Serpentine Pavilion, the 20th Serpentine Pavilion, designed by the Johannesburg-based practice Counterspace, and particularly by uh, Samaya Valley. So what was that like, then? 
Well, it's an interesting one. Physically, it's quite an imposing pavilion. It's one of the larger ones. So the way it's been put together is Samaya did a huge amount of research into various diasporic and cross-cultural communities across London in places like Brixton, Hoxton, Tower Hamlets, Peckham. And she did this process of architectural sampling. I think she looked for community spaces, be they restaurants, libraries, bookshops, and took snippets of the architecture and then kind of abstracted it to create this huge hulking sculpture, which has a slight air of set design about it. It's a micro-concrete. It's not concrete all the way through, but it gives the impression of that. And these huge kind of fluted columns and bizarre little bits of architecture that resolve into ledges and shelves. It's a little bit like walking through, I don't know, a Roman market that's become a bit scrambled. It's funny, I did react to its scale um, seeing it. It is very monumental somehow, but then it has this quite attractive sort of powder pink colour, which I think softens it a bit. Yeah, it does. I think it's one of the nicer pavilions in a while to be in. It's quite spacious, which in COVID times is no bad thing. And it feels interesting. All of those different forms create juxtapositions and different angles based upon where you are. The only thing I wondered is the motivation behind it to shine a light on areas of London which don't get a huge amount of attention and to flag up the worth of the architecture there in building community. I don't think anyone in that pavilion, unless they'd read about it beforehand, would know that's what it's about. Those elements have been so heavily abstracted. It's not like you're going to walk through and say, oh, that's the Four Aces Club in Dalston. Yeah, I know it very well. You, you don't have a chance. And so while I think it's a really great topic to look at, I wonder how well suited a pavilion programme in the middle of Hyde Park is to discussing diaspora and to discussing those elements of community in London. I probably would disagree somewhat because I think that, you know, any any pavilion as it's been over the last 20 iterations it's also really about reading about it, understanding the reasons for why an architect has decided on this particular form. So I think that people will engage with it, albeit by text. But I also think that the other thing or the counter to it, this is that Counterspace has also thrown out a number of installations into the London landscape, right? So it's not just focused on the Kensington Garden site. They also have put a number of sculptures in some of those places that they've been directly inspired by. So I think that just having that dialogue between space and place, the people coming to visit the pavilion or people in the rest of the city seeing some of those sculptures and wondering what it is and that it's almost like a bit of an advertising pillar for the pavilion that maybe will draw them there. I think it's quite a clever move uh, on their behalf. They have done. My quibble with it is that the original idea was that the pavilion would gradually be dismantled over the course of its run and elements of it would move around London. So those were more substantial, whereas I think the elements which have been installed at the moment are relatively small and modest. Now, that original idea, I think, is fabulous and would have been such an interesting way to approach it. It ended up not being logistically possible, which is a pity because I think that would have really added something. I think you're right. I think people do read about it and it's interesting. It's just one of those things which maybe makes you question the overriding structure of that pavilion programme, which is um, 
it's intended to bring in new audiences to architecture. And in some ways, it's great to do that somewhere very central in Hyde Park. It has continuity. But that draws a particular audience. Whereas if the pavilion may be travelled, each year it's in a different location in London, I think you would possibly engage different audiences. And I wonder particularly with something like this pavilion, it would read very differently if, say, it was installed in the middle of Brixton rather than in the middle of Hyde Park. And you'd have that feeling of it's a prestigious commission and it's in sort of embedded in the community it's talking about. So I, I think it, it's a good idea, definitely. I just wonder if it, if it shows some limitations of that pavilion programme. Mm. One thing that's been a criticism of the program in in general is its heavy use of material and its very temporary nature. And I think this year they made an effort to make it carbon neutral or something like that. Do you know anything more about that? Yeah, I do. It's really contested, though, as to whether they succeeded. So they say it's carbon negative by 9,000 tonnes. Then critics have come back and sort of done the, no, no, it isn't type thing. (laughs) So it goes back and forth. And as to what's being factored into that, I think one of the things people have focused on is the foundations. They've poured 85 to 95 square meters you get different figures and different reports but it's something around that so there's this feeling of well how is that sustainable how is it sustainable i guess it's probably not (laughs) i think i read somewhere they're gonna break the concrete up and then distribute it locally afterwards i think it is going to be reused and they say that all the sort of metal structure this thing is built around that's all reused steel so they claim overall it is carbon neutral it's one of those strange things and i don't find the coverage that helpful because it gets into this very tit for tat it is carbon neutral no it isn't you haven't factored this in yes it is because we've done this and there's no like uniform way that's agreed of how do you assess where something is environmentally friendly now it's like everything you build and do is going to have an impact. Of course, yeah. It it has a carbon footprint to an extent. So it's more a case of, well, is it worthwhile? Is it worthwhile doing that? Is it worthwhile pouring this amount of concrete for a temporary pavilion each year? And, And that's kind of up for debate. And I know some people have said they should have a permanent foundation, which they then use each year. The Serpentine say that's impossible because of the rules around building in the park. But I I feel a little bit sorry for Counterspace that it's so focused on them. And that's because Hans Ulrich Obris, the creative director, last year said this thing that ecology is going to be at the heart of everything that the Serpentine does. But I feel like they've had to take quite a lot of the flack, whereas this is definitely true of every past pavilion. And just because people in the past got an easy ride doesn't mean people now should get an easy ride. But it it maybe feels a little bit unfortunate for her. It might be that Serpentine also has to consider this pavilion programme moving forward if indeed that's the commitment that they want to put towards being sustainable and environmentally concerned. Um, At the same time, I think that the pavilion programme over uh, the... 20 different iterations that we've seen it in has been a great way for people to experience contemporary architecture within London and people that we are otherwise not really subjected to within the kind of architecture <laughs> landscape. Subjected to. <laughs> Sorry. 
This year, Hans Oricopist <laughs> is delighted to subject you to counter space. <laughs> the work, I'm talking about people's work. So I guess what the... That's true. It's nice to be invited to suffer through their architecture. I agree. Oli, you are choosing willingly to misunderstand me. I think that we have to call this segment quits. Bonjour, mes amis. I'm delighted to say that this episode of The Crit has been brought to you in partnership with Maison et Objet, Paris's premier trade fair for design and interior architecture. If you've been missing the buzz of in-person events, and frankly, who hasn't, then I'm happy to let you know that Maison et Objet is back this autumn, from the 9th to the 13th of September. Conveniently, it even coincides with Paris Design Week, a more better way to shift the cabin fever than heading to Paris in the autumn. Maison is currently offering early bird rates at its website, www.maison-objet.com, where you can order your tickets. And you can also see all of the health measures being taken to make sure that this year's fair is COVID safe. And if for whatever reason you can't go, then first of all, I'm so sorry. But secondly, you needn't miss out entirely. The fair is also running a week of digital programming, with all details available at maison-objet.com. So don't dawdle. Book your tickets to Maison et Objet now. A bientôt. Johanna, what did you think about the news that Jeff Bezos is going to go into space? I'm fairly indifferent to it, actually. I mean, it <laughs> sounded like many people weren't, well, though. It would be sad to know that. I mean, it's like around 80,000 people have signed some sort of petition to send him there and then have him stay. Is that what Change.org has tried to do? I think so. So for anyone who missed this story, and to be honest, it was hard to miss this story. Jeff Bezos, the world's richest man, founder of Amazon, he announced that he was going to go up in the first crewed flight of the new Shepard rocket ship, which was developed by his space company Blue Origin. He was going to go up with his brother Mark, and they were going to auction off a third spot on the good ship New Shepard for charity. So I think I think someone in the end paid about... $28 million to go on a flight with Jeff Bezos into space. And how long do they get on the flight? Something like 11 minutes. Probably yeah. enough time for you to have enough of Jeff Bezos, though. Yeah, potentially. I mean, maybe you want to pitch him a good idea and it'd be worth it. Maybe you could do a kind of Kickstarter <laughs> campaign to get on the flight. Jeff, now I've got you. <laughs> and I mean, there's nowhere he can go, let's face it. I mean, how do they ensure people's safety i mean how do they ensure because they're going up soon right in july so how 20th of july is the plan how yeah. do they vet the person going with him oh what in case they in case they have a pop at bezos when he's up in space like an assassin yeah i mean 11 you can do a lot of harm in 11 minutes they'd have had to pay 28 million but assassination i'm led to believe is expensive these days so it's taking a dark turn. It is, but it's interesting to bring up the safety because I think this is one of the aspects which is really interesting. So the design world has suddenly become very fascinated in space travel. Uh, there have been a few exhibitions, the Mars exhibition at the Design Museum for one, looking at the sudden privatisation of space and looking at companies like Blue Origin, looking at Elon Musk's SpaceX. So there's all this design interest in it, but... 
there is so much more which goes with it. So apparently no insurer will touch this mission. No insurance company is willing to insure uh, Jeff Bezos going into space. And like there's all of that stuff which goes with these design projects, which just doesn't get talked about, but which is fascinating. Do you know what sort of regime he has to be on before he goes up? Because famously going into space is um, quite a daunting experience and a lot of training and preparation goes into that if you're an astronaut. Yeah, I don't know. This is just one of those aspects of space tourism that I suppose will need to be worked out. There must be health checks. I can't imagine people are going through huge physical training regimes to be able to go. Although maybe they are. I think it's just because it's such uncharted territory. There will be all of these aspects to work out, like the healthcare, like the insurance, which at the moment... No one's had to touch before, so there are no systems in place for it. Mm. Maybe we should consider that, like, you know, a space insurance travel agency. Maybe maybe that's something unique. <laughs> Do you know what's on next month, Ollie? The Olympics? It's not what I thought of, but it's the annual World Heritage Meeting for UNESCO, and it's going to happen in China, in July, actually. And... Something in the lead up to that meeting has made a lot of people in Liverpool quite nervous recently. Did you read about this? I did. This is the news that Liverpool's waterfront may lose its world heritage status, right? Yeah, exactly. They say with deep regret, uh, new developments in the city has resulted in serious deterioration in the and irreversible loss of attributes to its heritage status. Yeah, so I don't actually know Liverpool too well. I've been to the city a few times, but its docks were a really major global port in the 18th and 19th century. They were very important for immigration from Europe to America. Less salubriously, it was also a big part of the transatlantic slave trade. So there's an awful lot of history in that part of the city, and that's been listed. It's an interesting one because the way that these listings meetings happen, and we wrote about it a few years ago when they had the annual committee meeting in Istanbul, I believe, and we were sitting in on the sessions. We did. This was while they were waiting to see if Frank Lloyd Wright's buildings would be listed. And it was a difficult process. It's very bureaucratic. And many years of preparation. Yeah, there's that sense of you have to learn how to play the system a little bit. It doesn't matter if what you're trying to get listed is just an incredible building or incredible landscape. If you can't tick the boxes UNESCO need you to, you won't get through. No. And Liverpool was granted World Heritage status in 2004. So that's a decent amount of time. And I guess what a city like Liverpool or indeed any other heritage uh, listed places get is um, a a great deal of tourism, people wanting to come and see these places. I mean, the Taj Mahal is uh, one of the earliest examples of uh, a site having listed status. So these are places that become world recognized if they weren't so already before with that kind of listed status there is a increased interest from a general public to maybe go and see them why do you think that they are so concerned about these new developments ollie 
Well, this is a storm which has been brewing for a while. So UNESCO has been saying for a few years that Liverpool has been ignoring its advice and not allowing it to review plans. And in particular, they've looked at two new plans, which they've said especially are worrying. One is the new stadium at Bramley Moor Dock for Everton Football Club. And the other one is a huge development called, is it Liverpool Waters? Mm -hmm. Liverpool Waters. And that would have the highest tower in the UK outside side of London and it has an awful lot of office blocks. I haven't had a good look at that development. The renders I've seen, it's pretty bland. I mean, it looks like a big corporate development. So it's unsurprising that UNESCO have raised concerns over it. The stadium, the stadium I feel more torn on because I think UNESCO have flagged up that these huge mega stadiums, they're not very good for building community necessarily in an area. At the same time, Everton Football Club is a massive part of Liverpool. It's a huge thing. So many people follow it. And, you know, lots of people are very sniffy about sports as a form of culture. And I don't think they should be. So arguably, that is a major new cultural venue, which will actually be used by the people of Liverpool. I don't know the plans well enough to know if it is a massive plot on the landscape like a huge wart just planted down to celebrate football all year round but that I feel more positively towards than Liverpool waters. Apparently the project has gained widespread public support uh, and I guess you know uh, Everton fans would be delighted to have a new stadium to congregate in. According to the plans by the American architect Dan Meese it's a brick steel and glass design that's said to take its inspiration from the old warehouses nearby. And apparently I read that when the council said, it's okay, we're giving the go-ahead for this, they concluded there's an integrate number of historic features that could actually deliver heritage benefits by enhancing degraded on-site heritage assets, improving access to the world heritage sites and unlocking access to the history. So I guess they think that by having this investment within the local area, it can also enable a richer understanding and another type of approach to the heritage site. I can't say if that's what this new building will achieve or not, but it certainly seems that the local council and many local people are behind it. But at the same time, there are many societies for like the Victorian society that are, you know, are outraged by it. And many people that look at preserving historical architecture clearly are also concerned that this might be a bit of an eyesore in otherwise very well preserved area of Liverpool. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? And we should say it's incredibly rare for something to be removed from that World Heritage list. Liverpool hasn't been definitely removed yet. That that will come next month, they vote on it. But given that it's been recommended, I think it's quite likely. I think the only other thing which has ever been removed from that list is Dresden's Elbe Valley, which I think they built a new bridge right in the middle of the valley and they said that that had damaged the universal value of the landscape. But they were encouraged to reapply for it in future. So if this does go ahead, it's, it's quite a big deal. I think it's just very difficult in a sense, so if you're preserving something like the Taj Mahal or the Parthenon, they're much easier <laughs> to an extent because it's kind of keep them like they are. Everyone likes them. They're fabulous. Just don't mess around with it too much. 
Although even the Parthenon, there's been this outrage recently about new pathways being installed leading up to it. But if you're looking at the docks in the middle of a major city, and a city which a lot of people live in, a kind of living, working city, you kind of can't just preserve everything in aspic. And then it gets much harder because, well, what developments do you allow? What developments don't you allow? Who gets to decide what's sensitive to the culture and history? If lots of people locally are in favour of it, surely that should count for something. But, I mean, it's a mess, isn't it? It is. I mean, yeah, I guess a city in that regard can't be a monument or a part of a city can't be a monument, but it has to be a sort of living, breathing entity. And I think one of the kind of greatest result of that, of using the docks in a new way and for a, a new audience is Tate Liverpool, which I think has done an excellent job of transforming some of the warehouses. It's the Albert docks universally celebrated, sort of one of the great success stories of how you can do this type of thing. So one to keep an eye on next month in China. <laughs> Anam Sting is what, like a WhatsApp platform for criminals or something like that? There's been, <laughs> been a lot of writing about it recently. Oli, can you enlighten me because I don't understand it exactly. It's very much WhatsApp for criminals. <laughs> do, you want to, do you want to communicate about your trafficking and assassinations? <laughs> then uh, Anam is the one for you. This is my favourite design story of the past month. So for those who don't know... Anon was an encrypted communication system, so a way that you could send information covertly. And it was installed on cell phones that had been stripped of all normal functions via their calculator app. And then when you went on the calculator, it got you into this sort of secret communications network. This is amazing. As you can imagine, Anon attracted a particular audience. (laughs) (laughs) It was developed for. So it was used by gangs, basically, to coordinate. And it had a great reputation amongst them. They all felt it was terribly safe and secure. So apparently a lot of the communications that went back and forth on it weren't even encrypted. There were just people speaking about openly criminal actions, like, oh, I think I might do a murder next month if you want to come along. It's clear that you don't have a lot of experience of this world, Ollie. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, so it, it, it is a piece of digital design which served nefarious purposes, but the sting in the tail was that it was a sting. There was a sting! Hey, it was a sting. Oh. It was the FBI all along. Oh dear. Um, How clever of them. So this had been set up, but well, not only the FBI, FBI, Europol, and I think the Australian police force as well. They had worked with a distributor for Phantom Secure, which was a similar previous app, which had then been closed down by the FBI. And in exchange for a reduced prison sentence, they got this distributor to hand over the keys to Anon. So basically, they controlled the whole thing. They helped distribute this app amongst criminal networks. And they basically could oversee everything that went back and forth. But just to get this clear, they weren't involved with actually designing the app. The app was already designed, was already existing. My understanding is that it existed in some form. I think that I'm not entirely clear on that, I must admit. But they got access to it very early on. I don't I don't think the FBI sort of kicked it over to their design division and the person who did their new website and said, 
well, we need an app. We need an app for criminals. The way that you describe it having to be accessed via calculator doesn't seem the most user friendly. <laughs> and it makes me think of, you know, when you were a kid and you had a calculator, you could spell out boob, like if you turned it upside down or whatever. Uh, you know, it, yeah. it's sort of... Well, not to shock you, Jal, but some of these people were actually doing things even naughtier than spelling out <laughs> boob on the calculator. But I just wonder what the interface was like. You know, what did it look like? What sort of vibe did it have? What was its item? <laughs> it, it has a lot for it, going for it, this story, actually. But they got some criminals in the end. 800 or so were arrested worldwide. Yeah, I think so. It's been a huge success. And it just kind of shows there is an arms race looking at covert communications. People want covert places in which they can talk. And that's not always a bad thing. Some people have very good legitimate reasons why they don't want their messages to be accessible. But in the criminal cases, you then have police forces desperately trying to keep up with what they're doing. We have a tendency, I think, to always think of design as this very benevolent force. Stories like this are great because they bring out maybe a seedier side and a more nefarious side. Anon, from the sounds of it, in certain respects, was a very good app for communicating criminal acts, only let down by the fact that the FBI ran it. However, <laughs> had the FBI not been running it, it would have been, you know, it's perfect, isn't it? We're now on to our products and projects category, which a relatively small selection this month, but some nice pieces. So the first one we're going to look at is the Axel Wong collection by Barber and Oscar B, um, which is taps and bathroom fittings. Now, these types of projects are quite difficult to make sound sexy and interesting. I think often because there's a slight squeamishness around the bathroom and because they're very functional, it can be tricky to get much buzz going around it. But this project is really nice. And one thing I like about it is they've designed a very elegant faucet, which is just a single curved tube. And it has an all-in-one controller. So you just sort of tap it to start or stop the water and then turn that to increase temperature. So it's a really paired back control system. The interesting thing with something like that, that the general public only have particular interest in those things when they're going through a kind of house refurb or changing their bathroom. So it, it's not something that kind of continuously fascinates. You might have a period of your life when you're absolutely obsessed with taps and bathroom fittings, like I have recently been. <laughs> oh, have you been remodeling? Uh, remodeling my flat. And yeah, it's, it's interesting uh, how difficult it is to make those selections. And it's difficult to know how to inform yourself. I think that this product is interesting for that and Axor in general do a very good job of explaining the benefits of their products. And the thing I quite liked about it is you can't control how much water comes out. That's just the standard amount. And I believe that they did quite a bit of research on this and reasoned that the bulk of the time people don't really use that. You just you just want to need water for a brief period. I think this is particularly in the context of hotels and contract things like that. But that's, that kind of threw me a little bit thinking about it. Surely you need sometimes a lot of water and sometimes not that much. But maybe they're right. I, I suppose you don't necessarily. It's not as if you always finally match the water to the, the task you're completing with the water. So the next product that we have to talk about is the Kata chair by Alter de Seal and Park for Arper. It's a small and lightweight 
armchair in wood with a 3D printed knit textile. I think what was interesting for me with this is that the design, which is extremely minimal and and very simple, really harks back to a more kind of mid-century design aesthetic. But then while using a very kind of simple wooden frame, it does also make use of a very kind of highly engineered 3D knit to create a very comfortable sitting experience. And I think that sort of combination of the traditional with with the new is something that makes this product intriguing to me. Yeah, I think it's a nice piece. And like you, I, I quite like that it looks much lighter than most of the armchairs out there. It's much more discreet. Whereas everyone is very used to quite big and bulky armchairs because it has those connotations of comfort and warmth and being very enveloping. Whereas there's something nice about how simple this is. Simple wood frame with, as you say, this quite interesting technical knit to provide a bit of comfort. It looks a good design. And the final thing we're going to talk about is a project. And this is quite exciting because it's a major project. It's a new museum opening in Berlin. And it's the first time we've had an external guest on the crit. Johanna, you count as internal. Now, this is Anoha, the children's world of the Jewish Museum Berlin. So it's a new space developed by the architects Olsen Kundig to create the story of Noah's Ark and all of the connotations within that for the Jewish Museum in Berlin. It's a space specifically designed for children, but as part of that, it's also intended to appeal to adults too. I sat down with Alan Maskin earlier this week, who was the design principal on the project, and I believe we have a recording of that interview now. Alan Maskin, thank you very much for joining us on the Crit. You're actually our first ever interview. Oh my goodness! We have on the podcast that I didn't know. Yeah, um, it's a complete pleasure to be here, Ali. Thank you for having me. I I don't mind telling you, it's quite the honour. <laughs> <laughs> I I accept that, and uh, I I feel it's an honour as well. Um, and I hope to live up to your future interviews uh, in what we create today. Well, you're joining us because uh, your practice has just opened. Do you pronounce it Anoha? Anoha? Yes, yes. Anoha. Anoha. A new museum in Berlin. So maybe to kick us off. You... If it's difficult for you to pronounce, it's because a word that doesn't exist in uh, any language. It was actually created uh, by a group of children. And maybe we'll talk about this later. But there was a children's advisory council that was attached to the project, about 20 kids. And I'll describe it more later when we talk about it. But uh, they came up with the name that is a sort of uh, involves aspects of Noah's Ark, but also is about something new in their minds. And so that's... Uh, so none of us really know how to pronounce it, uh, <laughs> which is a great branding uh, exercise, I think. Oh, but that's lovely that they were involved. And it's quite a pleasing word to, to say. It, it sounds a little bit like aloha, which I suppose has positive connotations exactly. of welcoming. And that's the first I've heard of that, but I agree. Yeah. Well, maybe to kick us off, you can tell us a little bit about what Anoa is. What is this new museum? Anoa is a museum that is created at the Jewish Museum of Berlin and is an addition or additional museum to their campus of buildings and projects. And they had set out to create, they felt that that there was aspects of their audience that were underserved. And so, and in general, it had tended to be youth, that a lot of their exhibits, a lot of their museum content, uh, some of which is, you know, extremely important and very serious, um, skews to older audiences. And they wanted something for children 
that in their words would give kids a sense of hope and possibility and so that was where they they went out sort of in the world doing research to try to determine what it is they wanted to create and eventually that became a design competition so what was the initial brief for that competition what were you asked to do well, the, the brief was informed by the fact that the Jewish Museum of Berlin, the people creating the project at the museum, they traveled to Los Angeles and visited the Skirball Cultural Center, which uh, was actually a project that I had designed decades ago. And there's a Noah's Ark project there, and they were curious about it. And so they went and visited it. And, you know, there's that thing about the first project. It was my first exhibit design project. I do lots of types of cultural projects and monuments and museums. But uh, when I worked for the Skirball, it was the very first children's sort of experience or exhibit design project I ever worked on. And I didn't really know what I was doing. And so, um, but they did. And they were an amazing sort of first client. And I, you know, many, perhaps many people that come on uh, this conversation with you in the future will share this. But there's the importance of those first projects uh, in terms of one's career. Uh, and the Skirball, almost every single thing I work on is informed by or tracks to the design at the Skirball Cultural Center. When the Jewish Museum of Berlin people went there, the, um, the Skirball was extremely generous. They shared with them their ideas, their values. Um, they were uh, impressed with the project. And they had come up with their own version of the Noah's Ark story, which is about diversity, community, and I love this last part, the, the importance of second chances in life, which I think, and you know, when, we, when I got that particular brief to make a children's design based around those three things, 20 years ago was uh, probably the greatest challenge you could ever imagine. And the uh, Jewish Museum of Berlin took the, the lessons that they had learned from the Skirball, and then they put, created the brief for a competition, again, decades later. And the competition for them was they were intrigued with the idea of the Noah's Ark story because there is a link to the Torah and to the uh, to, to sort of Jewish culture. And so they, uh, they sort of liked that. And many of the lessons and values that they learned at the Skirball, the Skirball, I think, believes that are important for children all over the world. And so I think that's why they were so... Um, gracious and sort of sharing their concepts and their ideas. And the Jewish Museum of Berlin created a, a program or a brief uh, for the design competition was to t that was to take an existing flower market that uh, it was remodeled in the 1960s, a big concrete shell that was unheated, and uh, and and then they wanted to locate this children's museum there. It's across the street from a. a there's multiple buildings on the Jewish Museum of Berlin campus. There's a, a building from the 1750s, which is uh, the, their sort of main sort of original building. There's many projects by Studio Liebeskind uh, that were created over time. Uh, and then this was going to be a new, new iteration in this uh, old flower market and to create it. And they basically said, you know, come to us with your ideas about how to do this and and we're just going to throw out that we believe in Noah's Ark and that some of the values that they felt were important for children today. And so it was pretty open-ended at that point. So people entering the design competition, and I think there were over a hundred entries, everyone got to sort of pretty much take it in their own direction and uh, and come back with what they felt would be important. I mean, we'll come back to the new building and what you did in there, but it was interesting to hear you mention how often the Skirball Cultural Centre project has come back in your work, because often when people look back on their career, 
there's pride in those early projects, sure, and, and people recognise how important they are, they are. But there's often a, a certain embarrassment or an awkwardness of looking back on your early work and people maybe feel, oh, it was it was a very naive project or my practice has really evolved and progressed since then and they'd rather speak about more current works. Whereas it, it sounds for you as if it's a real pleasure to go back to that and was, was a lovely yeah. moment. I, I recognise that and I can understand with some other projects that I would actually feel, as you described, not the Skirball. The Noah's Ark project there changed everything about how I think about design, how I work with clients, how I work with children, and and what it is to build eclectic and unusual teams to and, and that usually don't work in a museum modality to create projects. And then the ways, they did this brilliant, they did many brilliant things, but one of the things they did is they went out into the community because they were they were a Jewish cultural center and so they knew their own community quite well they had uh, certainly been working with them for decades but they didn't know they wanted to welcome children from all the neighborhoods of Los Angeles and there's probably I think there's 11 different languages spoken in the city of Los Angeles and so they created a program where we went out to schools to sort of talk with those communities and those children about uh, what it is they would want to make and they I think rather brilliantly, included the designers with the educators to actually go and meet with really young kids and talk to them about the project and what it is it could be. And it transformed the project. And in some ways, because I've been, I'm an architect, but I came to this from art education and I was an art teacher. And and th- there were many things that the Skirball wanted to talk with children about, about values and how much do they know about Noah's Ark. But I wanted to get children to draw. And so we actually got, I think, 75 different kids to make drawings like a comic strip with four blocks where they could actually show us a narrative in their own words and pictures. And that showed us things that conversation did not. And in every project I've worked on since then, I have tried to find some way for visitors to engage uh, and make things. And that continued in the ANOHA project as well. I mean, with the Anoha project, you mentioned that it's built inside this former flower hall building. And what a fabulous gift to be given as an architect to have that existing infrastructure. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, extraordinary concrete building, very, very high ceilinged, very sort of roomy and empty with a lot of light flooding in as well. What were your initial thoughts on that? I'm I'm so glad to hear your perspective, uh, Ali, on the building. <laughs> no, I shared it completely. And Studio Liebeskin worked on it has worked on an academy in ha- in one half of the building, and this has been in, has sat empty for decades, I believe. And it was created in the 1960s by a guy named Bruno Grimmick, and uh, an architect. And it was a remodel then, so it's su- and there's not much you can find in the building, but it suggests that it has been a flower market for a very very long time. And he created this concrete structure that you're describing. I, uh, when, once the competition had begun, there was a short list and there was a meeting in Berlin where all of the teams got to tour the building. And when we walked through, it blew my mind. I just, it's, a, as you describe, it's this vast, huge concrete shell, wide span, very few columns, these beautiful sculpted concrete skylights that run the entire length of the building, bringing beautiful north daylight in. And I turned to a member of the museum staff and I just said, this is an amazing building. And he, he turned to me and he said, 
well, you're the first person to think so. And I found that kind of extraordinary because what I, lo- I loved inheriting and working with an existing framework, and that became part of a larger idea about adaptive reuse, sustainability, recycling, and in, in, in many, many aspects. And so the building, I thought, the building is unheated. It was in poor shape. It literally was a you know open air sort of wholesale flower market in its earlier renditions. And I loved transforming that kind of space. So I'm with you. I inherited a found object that was a real jewel. How did you want the project to to interact with that building? So I suppose, spoiler alert, but you built a wooden arc, in short, inside of that structure, which is the sort of exhibition space for the museum. What did you want the interaction between that circular arc, wooden arc, and that concrete shell to be? In making a project about about Noah's Ark, although it's actually about many, many, many flood narratives, there's over 500 flood narratives that come from all over the world and most that are very similar to the Noah's Ark story. And many of them predate the Old Testament, some of them by thousands of years. And the Ark... Gilgamesh has a flood narrative, there, uh, one, it, doesn't it? One of many, yes. And there is a, uh, a curator, at the, I believe, at the British Museum who wrote this uh, pretty remarkable book. His name is Irving Finkel. And someone had brought in, it was a, ta- a carved stone tablet, I think they brought it in a plastic bag in his book, about the size of an iPhone, literally, but carved in stone. And, it, the hier- and he interpreted the hier- hieroglyphics eventually, and he discovered that it was yet another one of these flood narratives. And in fact, the flood narrative was like a, the instruction manual for how to build an ark. And when he actually tested it and read all of the instructions, he realized that the ark was round. And we felt that a round arc was symbolically an extraordinary thing to create. And when we started to sort of experiment and design and draw and build models of, of a, what an, a round arc might look like inside this concrete shell, uh, one member of the team said, you know, it looks like Discovery 5 from uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. And we, and we put up pictures of that, and it was absolutely right. And it was like, well, that's what this needs to be. This needs to be an arc for the future. This needs to be where children are actually sort of looking at the, the world where we are today and imagining what that can be. So the challenge became, how do we take this arc and locate it in, the, in this building, in the construct of it? And the reason that the shape works is that we have beautiful daylight coming in from the north. Again, the original Gremic building is all skylights, like run the length of it. So constantly daylight, even on overcast days in Berlin, it's beautifully lit in there. But it also meant because it wasn't heated that we could make a building within the building and actually use a lowered ceiling and hierarchically guide the visitor so that they only get glimpses of the interior shell of the concrete as they move through the space where it slowly reveals itself until they are in the center courtyard and suddenly they see this sort of magnificent piece. So it's a bit sort of choreographed in terms of the sequence of how people move spaces to actually maximize But by making a building within the building, there are so many sustainable strategies that we're able to achieve as a consequence of actually making an interior building that is heated and and ventilated and has natural daylight options within the shell of an existing structure. Talk to me a little bit about your relationship to that Noah's Ark story, because it's a fascinating narrative, because on the basic level, it's a story which everyone knows. It has 
it's 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 a great story it has a clear narrative arc moving through and i think it's something that captures everyone's imagination but there are so many contemporary and sort of broader resonances to that it's a story around conservation it's a story about survival it's a story about migration and displacement i mean a lot of the issues which we look at in the world today in some form or another are present in that original tale without question and i think that the studying the other flood narratives along with the sort of old testament versions is really fascinating because they all have the same values that you just sort of laid on the table every one of them and so why was there this universal need for thousands of years for this sense of renewal and conservation and and uh, and looking at the world from a perspective of caring which is how i see the noah's ark character and when we were entering the competition, it was in the period when Germany in particular was accepting more migrants and immigrants who were escaping persecution than any other sort of country in the world at the time. I believe they accepted over a million people. And so we're working on the competition, but we're studying this and we're aware of this global human condition of uh, what it means to sort of open your home to others who are leaving unsafe and dangerous situations. And we wanted to make this place built around that concept. And so that's why we went to the flood narratives, because they come from they come from Africa, from the Middle East, from Alaska, from South America. They literally come from everywhere in the world. So there is a universal aspect to the story itself that we think can relate to anyone. And that was a gesture. And by focusing the design on that, it meant that Anybody could probably find a story here that relates to where they come from, their own cultures, and that it is universal. It's not just one religion. It's not just one area. And it wouldn't be Noah's Ark without the animals is a central part of it. And that's something which comes very much to the fore in your design. So you worked with a a group of artists, didn't you, in, in creating animal representations for the space? We did. I think there's a variety of ways where that I'm, I'm very proud of on this and other projects I've worked on, but the notion of community engagement and the role that they play in design. And in this instance, there's a number of ways that that happened. But I described to you already that there were children and the children on this advisory council, they came from the neighborhoods of the immigrant populations that were had migrated to Berlin. And as well, you know, so it was a, a, a pretty diverse group of kids aged six to 12 years old. And they actually engaged with us on in many, many ways throughout the entire project. But the creation of the animals, and you're absolutely correct, when I had children doing drawings at the Skirball and I had 75 drawings in the studio and I pinned them on the wall and looked at them, every single kid drew the ramp with animals walking up the ramp, every single kid. But no best bit. (laughs) Apparently it is. And so that resonated with them, but none of them said that when we interviewed them or talked to them. So it was realizing that there was this, some iconic aspect to this story that was universal to all of them and making that, recreating that exhibit at the Skirball became the most successful exhibit. So I've always been pretty much stealing from children in my design work and like getting their ideas and literally just manifesting them and then getting all the credit. Um, And because it actually, actually has been um, extremely successful. So the idea of the animals, I've always been fascinated by artists that work in the vein of of taking found objects and transforming them, this sort of recycling or adaptive reuse. And that's a recurring theme throughout the project. We are sort of recycling a 
concrete flower market. We are recycling the objects to transform into the creation of animals. And we worked with a firm in uh, Berlin. They're called Cubics. And there's a conceptual artist uh, named Anna Metzen, who was heading up a team of Berlin artists that actually created the animals. And we began by some sketches to say this is the type of thing that we're looking for but it was very intentional that we hand that piece to an artist community and it's a little nerve-wracking like you don't quite know what you will get back and in every instance that I've worked with artists in this regard it has ex so far exceeded my expectations and so their program from us or their what we had asked them to do or the brief was to literally use recycled materials and transform them, use their properties to transform them into these sort of sculptures that will inhabit the entire arc. But there's an education piece that relates to children and uh, that I think is about invention and transformation. And if you think about a chemist, they, they, they begin to visualize what if the combinations of chemicals will do to create something else, or an architect, what materials will do to create a certain form, or an artist. And that ability to look at any object for children and actually say, that looks like X, or if I put that together with this, it will become that lesson is something that that is sort of exemplified in this exhibit but also in the programming there's an enormous amount of programming that will happen at anoha and it will be it is an area where we want children to be able to do that and what i have learned over the years is that notion of transformation imagination and invention is a place that children can go pretty easily there's something quite permissive about the animals because they're such a free-for-all i mean so there's a giraffe whose eye is made from the sort of bell of a saxophone and then the mouthpiece curves up to create its horn. There's a, I think, is it a rhinoceros made from some kind of strapping or wrapped around you know, the frame? The rhino is, uh, when I was in Berlin and I was asked by a journalist what, which of the animals that this team had created was my favorite, and I, I went to the rhino as well. The rhino is made from fire hoses, entirely out of fire hoses. And what happens in fire departments is that you can only use a fire hose for a certain number of times, and then you have to sort of retire it. And so there's enormous amounts of fire hoses that sit there would need to go to a landfill. They used every piece of it. The eyes are made out of the ways that hoses are connected. The ears are made out of the hoses where water comes out of them. And then the entire body is sort of strapped in this sort of rather beautiful woven sort of pattern that makes up the hose itself. And so it's an example of, again, recycling. Things can be reused in ways that can be really successful and maybe important. I mean, it's a powerful message because I think one of the problems often that reuse and recycling has is it's very hard for people to train themselves to think of objects made from recycled materials as being of high value or being desirable. There's often a stigma surrounding them. And I think the permissiveness of these animals, the sense of free-for-all, that you can make something full of life and charming, like this rhinoceros out of those uh, hoses, there's something quite empowering about that because suddenly something that's waste effectively, something that's of very low value, gets gets a new a new lease of life and a lease of life that's fun and endearing and that you want to interact with and and that's what sometimes is a struggle when you work with those recycled materials or upcycled materials. I think that certainly within culture, 
I think that there's many, many artists that have really turned to recycled materials just um, because of the potential of what resonates and, and what the, you know each, each item brings into the equation. The notion of recycling a building, however, and, and reusing it in the very similar way, it also means that you will have, we, we did an analysis at the end of the project where we studied if we had knocked down the flower market, which would have been criminal and we never would have done, but if we had, uh, <laughs> instead of, by just transforming it, we reduced the amount of carbon by 95%. And so if you imagine mm -hmm. that lens of looking at the world means that we, it changes the way we look at cities and that it, it creates, a, creates a greater importance on the reimagination of what is already there in terms of what we can transform it in, into the future. And every major project I've worked on, honestly, in the last decade has essentially been a transformation of a historic or remodeled project. It's an approach which is obviously getting critical recognition. I mean, the Pritzker Prize, for instance, this year, won by Lacadonna Vassal, whose entire practice is based around that, how it makes much more sense to work with existing buildings. It's cheaper, it's more environmentally friendly, and I think their work shows it's creatively and aesthetically satisfying as well. Without question, I found that selection uh, deeply inspiring because I do think it changes what the way we need to look at the world and the world of architecture. Tell me a little bit about how, how do you want children to use and interact in this museum? I mean, it's full of these animals. What's a child going to experience when they go round? How are they meant to interact with these exhibits? The majority of uh, children that will come there will be through, well, it'll be open to the public and there's a variety of different events that will be happening there every day. But what's also there are classrooms and studios and places for making. And there's a variety of different exhibits and, and things that they can experience. But there's a very strong museum education component. And I think that's something we've seen really rising over the years, which is creating ways and programs for school children that can, where they can actually engage in deep or specific ways. They can do research and they can use this as a catalyst for that to occur. But there was one exhibit that is just one of many that, that children um, will be able to experience. And I'll describe it to you really quickly, Ali. It, it came about when the educators at the museum were working with this group of advisors, these kid advisors, and they decided that for them, climate change is a modern flood narrative. It's a flood story. Uh, much like the other flood narratives in Noah's Ark stories, and that it's ongoing in our lives today. And they wanted children to be thinking about the challenges of our time. And so they were talking with them about rising, the rising tides from climate change, floodwaters, which they felt was a very strong connection they wanted this project to make. So they got out these swimming pools. I just found the photos of this the other day, and I'd almost forgotten about it, but they'd gotten out these kid, like little swimming pools, and they had kids build structures where animals and people could be saved in a flood. And the kids would design these, these three-dimensional boxes and objects, and then they would float them. And then if it tipped over or sank, they would redesign it, and they would modify it. And this became... And it was putting children in the in the realm of helper, using design and art to, to help others and to imagine solutions to some of the world's problems, even if you're between six and 12 years old. And so the things they made were extraordinary. At just the, 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 there were houses, floating houses, there were boats, there were barges. And so we actually have built a shop and any visitor can use this. And we created a river or a flood river and kids can release a gush of water take what they've created, 
put it in. There are rainstorms that it moves through. There are drops and sort of the ways that the water moves. And then see if they can actually get to the end and actually create an, a solution to a problem that is affecting the world. I think one of the things which is so lovely about organizations and institutions specifically geared towards children is that they encourage this sense of participation and they encourage children to get involved with what they're seeing. And that's a really good way to bring home a particular message. If you can begin to invest in what you're seeing and think through the issues, I think it becomes much more resonant and much clearer to you. Now, this is something which museums of all kinds are looking at at the moment. How can they move away from the mute display of objects and begin to activate collections a little bit more? How can you encourage people to become involved more with the museum and its collections? Do you think there are lessons which can be learned around designing for children, and particularly in this context of cultural institutions, which have relevance to any museum, any museum designed for adults, children, people of all ages? I do, and I'm going to sort of make a statement that might be surprising to you, but I don't design specifically or exclusively for children ever. I design for everybody, and the reason for that is that I believe that children will have the most meaningful experiences in museums when they are engaged with members of their family, with adults, with their grandparents, with their friends and others, and that is the piece that they actually remember. And so what I'm trying to do is to create a kind of design that is just simply an environment that is so playful, that is so irresistible, and it doesn't alienate people by making them feel like, oh, this is it for kids. This is not for me. I'll sit over on the side and look at my iPhone. I am trying to have that iPhone put away and get parents in there with their young children actually experiencing and playing these things together. And to do that, I think you have to be really careful about certain children's museum cliches that occur design-wise over and over and over again that and actually reach to something that there is something that everyone can find delightful. And when I see adults playing and trying things because they simply have to, it's too compelling for them, I feel like I've succeeded. So I do think there's a notion there in relationship to the ways that museums work, which is asking the question is, who am I excluding by not actually having this design reach out to them? And that is a much deeper and wider conversation, obviously, in our culture today. But what I've noticed in children's museums that I visited is that in the past, adults had been excluded purely by the design and making them feel like this is not something for them as well. What do you see those cliches as being? You mentioned the cliches of children's museum design. When we did our first muse uh, children's museum project at the Skirball, we did some research on our own, just visiting museums, and we would take pictures of them and would come back and study them. And we literally we began to look at them all across the United States. And there was these recurring themes where it was almost, you could feel it was adult designers' projections of what they think children would want. There was this use of primary colors over and over again. There would be this kind of forced dyslexia where letters would be turned backwards to make it feel like it was for kids. There was a sense of scale where everything was the same scale and, and, and that somehow cha visual chaos was what children wanted or needed in their lives. And then there was this sort of plasticized materiality that, uh, that occurred. 
So we came at it really wanting to play with scale. And Anoha is a great example of this enormous arc, but very small, tiny animals that you might happen to find if you climb through the rafters and actually explore and find them. But also variations in materiality. And, you know, wood is one of the most sustainable materials we can use today. And it's incredible to the touch. And nature has a vast palette of color that that is more than just the three primary colors that exist over and over again. And if there's some order within the space, then kids can actually focus and there can be intimacy that happens within the spaces. Looking at what others were doing was an inspiration in many ways. There's some examples where, you know, I'm deeply inspired by the city museum. I'm deeply inspired by the adventure playgrounds after World War II in the UK and Germany and other parts of Europe where children made their own playgrounds. And I'm always going to be drawn, I think, to I feel like everything that I, I, I know about designing for young people, I learned from simply watching them play. And I think that that's an indicator of a source for where one can build and, and learn. Alan Maskin, thank you for joining us on The Crit. <laughs> Holy, that sounded Holly. professional, right? <laughs> it did. I haven't decided how to do the outro yet, but that gives us an option. I think it, I think it worked. Uh, it certainly was good. Um, stay well, Ali. It was a pleasure to see you again. I hope we meet again. Well, that's all we have time for this week. It's been lovely to be back with you all. And Johanna, nice to have you here. Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting experience. I haven't been in the studio with you for a while and I definitely haven't done one of these with you alone. So, (laughs) sorry, that sounds creepy. (laughs) It makes it sound sinister. (laughs) Well, normally there are other people around and it's it's just a much more pleasant vibe, actually. And (laughs) I haven't really enjoyed it. Uh, but so thank you for inviting me and I might be back soon and otherwise I don't know what to say will I be back soon <laughs> I'm not sure well, well we'll see what listeners think if they've enjoyed you you might get the nod that's possible uh, we'll be back in July with a new episode looking over everything from that month in the interim you can keep up with us on social media we are at the crit podcast on Instagram at the crit design on Twitter and you can email us on the crit at com. If you'd like more content from the team behind The Crit, why not pick up the summer issue of Desenio, which is available on newsstands now and has some really great stories in there, so I would recommend that. I should also say Desenio has a new website. We are www.desenojournal.com. We'll be back next month and see you then. Bye! Johanna TPC, whether we'll be seeing you then. The www isn't really used anymore, is it? Do you think that's old-fashioned? Yeah, but, you know, it makes it sound retro. I like it. Maybe it makes us sound like classic broadcasters. Indeed. Good call, Ollie. This episode of The Crit was hosted by Johanna Argonne-Ross and Ollie Stratford. It was produced and edited by Evie Hall. 